Well, good morning. I wanted to begin today with a story that I know many of you have heard, but it relates to our subject here today of the time when I was uh, mugged in Columbus, Ohio. Uh, the year was 1982. Uh, my roommate Scott and I had gone for a walk at 10.30 at night. Uh, we were walking late because we'd had a Bible study at our house that evening, and we kind of waited for people to leave, and then we took off to have a very serious conversation. In fact, the, the, the talk was so serious that we were not really paying very close attention to our surroundings. And as we were walking that night, just north of the campus of Ohio State, a car pulled up with five guys in it. And the guy that was sitting in the front passenger seat rolled down his window and he said something to my roommate Scott. I didn't hear what he said. But I did notice that suddenly the door began to open and I realized that was not a good situation. I had lived in Chicago for almost four years and I knew that these guys were probably not selling Girl Scout cookies. And so at that moment when I saw the door opening, I yelled for my friend to run and then I took off running. A few minutes later, I turned back to make sure that he was okay and I saw him standing there just as one of the guys hit him in the face and he collapsed to the ground. And at that point I realized I have to go back. And so I went back to where the guy was standing over my roommate. By this time he was trying to get his wallet from his pocket and I grabbed him from behind and the two of us fell to the ground and we began to wrestle with one another. Now I wrestled in college and this guy was certainly not using legal collegiate moves. In either case, as we began to wrestle, a couple more doors opened some of the guys in the car realized that this was taking too long, and so they jumped out to, to help. And one of the guys pinned my feet to the ground, another one pinned my shoulders to the ground, and one of them began to hit me in the face. Then they turned me over on my stomach, trying to get to whatever wallet or money that I had, and it was at that point I decided to do something that was probably a mistake. I began to yell. Because the thought occurred to me, I do not want these guys getting away with this. What I didn't realize is that one of the guys had a knife. He began to come down on my back with that knife. I felt him come down five times on my back. Uh, the odd thing was I didn't feel the blade. I didn't know why that was the case, but I knew he had a knife. And so I thought in that moment, I better pretend to be dead or I would be. In fact, in that moment, something happened that I don't think has ever happened before or since. I had the, the closest thing to a vision that, that I've ever had. In my mind's eye, I, I saw that knife coming down on my back and going through my muscles. That's what I kind of saw in my mind's eye. And I thought, I just need to pretend to be dead. And so I did. And I did have an envelope in my back pocket with some money in it. And so they grabbed that, they jumped in the car, and they headed down the street. It was one of those streets, it was a one-way street with parking on both sides, uh, but it didn't work out well for this group because when they got to the end of the street, there was actually a police van waiting for them. Uh, to this day, I don't know if somebody called the police or whether or not they just happened to be driving by, but the police blocked them right there and they got out and arrested all five of the guys. A few minutes later, an officer came to where I was still lying on the ground he actually called me my name. He said, Tim, are you okay? Uh, he didn't know my name. I just looked like a guy he knew by the name of Tim. 
and I sat up. And as soon as I sat up, both of us saw the knife that he had used on me lying in the grass. In his haste, the guy had dropped it. What was unique about the knife is that it was in the shape of an L. It was a switchblade. It was quite large, but it had not for some reason opened all the way. I still to this day am convinced that God is the one who protected me that day. The knife, though, had done some harm to me. Uh, It was at the point where the blade and the handle intersected was a very sharp corner. And so when he was coming down on my back, he managed to rip my shirt and puncture my back. I was wearing a white shirt at the time, and it looked like kind of a bloody mess. And so I, got, I went to the police car. They took the shirt off of my back. Uh, the officer wanted to drive me to the hospital for a tetanus shot and to make sure that I was okay. But the only thing that was really wrong with me is that I had a black eye. I didn't think that actually I looked that bad until the next morning. Uh, we were having at our house a breakfast for our entire Bible study group, and, and I came down the stairs, and one girl took a look at me, and she just screamed, and I realized I must look fairly bad. But the only thing that was wrong with me is that I'd been hit in the face several times. A few months passed, and there was a trial. But before the trial began, and this begins to intersect with what I want to talk about today, before the trial even began, it was over. The attorneys on both sides, the prosecution and the defense, had gone into a back room, and without getting any input at all from me, without getting my opinion at all, they came up with a plea agreement. The original charge was attempted murder, which was a very serious charge, second only to murder in the state of Ohio, and they wanted to argue for a lesser charge, like aggravated assault or an attack with a deadly weapon or something like that. I don't remember what the charge was. But suddenly the trial was over. Afterwards, the judge called me up to the bench and he apologized. He said, I'm really sorry for the way this thing has turned out. He said, I realize that that this whole story could have ended differently. He said, I realize you could have died that day. But he said, there's really nothing I can do. Our prisons are full. And although I'd like to put these guys away forever, we just can't do that. And so one of the guys got two to 10 years, the other one got two consecutive two to 10 years, and three of them went free. Now, right before the trial began, something happened that kind of got me upset. I was in the restroom and some of the friends of those who had attacked me were in there. They recognized me and they came over to me and they said this, you better watch what you say in the trial. Because if you say the wrong thing, we know where you live. We know where to find you. Now, up to this point, I'd not been angry, even at those who attacked me, but at that moment, I became very angry. It wasn't that I was looking for vengeance, but I was looking for justice. And when this trial was done, I felt like I had not received justice. I suspected that these two guys would be out within a year after parole. I wasn't sure, but I suspected that's what was going to happen. My roommate, by the way, ended up being just fine. I don't think he even got a bruise out of it. Although this was the guy that ended up moving with me to Morgantown to help start the church here. So I think God used that incident to to unite the two of us together. I think that all of us have a sense of justice that God has put within our hearts. 
Uh, we want to see justice take place. We want those who are guilty to receive what they have coming to them. We do not like people to, as the expression goes, get away with murder. It's just right. We as Christians should not want revenge, but we should be happy about justice, but oftentimes justice is not served. I believe the greatest injustice that ever took place happened to Jesus. Jesus was the only person who never committed any sins of any kind. He was perfect, and yet he endured in his day the most painful and shameful form of death possible. And it just wasn't right, and it wasn't fair what he endured. But here's the thing that I want to be addressing here today. The people that charged him, the people that ended up putting him on that cross, were ones that should have, from their position of influence, defended him. The question I want to raise is this. What do you do when people who are in authority, who should use their position of power to do good, instead do evil? Instead of protecting the weak or protecting the innocent, the religious leaders, of course, as we'll see in a minute, looked for false witnesses against Jesus. They were not interested in the truth. And Pilate, the civic authority who could have done something about it, caved. I'd put it that way. He caved before the crowd. He even said with his own mouth, I know Jesus is innocent, but he turned him over to be crucified. And what do we do when those who are in positions of leadership or authority do not do the right thing? How should we as Christians respond? Now, last week we began a new series titled Out of the Shadows. It's a series about the stories that led up to the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. As I made the point two weeks ago, though, the, the thing about these stories is that almost all of them took place at night or in the cover of darkness. Jesus was in the garden of Gethsemane at night praying when he was arrested. At nighttime, his disciples all fled from him. You remember Jesus, or J Peter denied Jesus three times during the night. The trial began during the night, took place mostly during the night, although in the morning it was finished, but it happened mostly at night. And then although Jesus was crucified in the daytime, there was a, a period of three hours of darkness. And if you looked at any of these stories by themselves, you might conclude evil won. The darkness prevailed. And yet in most of these stories, I see a glimpse of light. In fact, sometimes the light shines the brightest in the darkness. And oftentimes after the night comes the day, which was certainly true with the resurrection. Today, I want to focus on the trials that Jesus endured. Because what Jesus endured was not right. And the leaders did not do what was right. And it appeared once again that darkness had prevailed and not the light. And I think this is a very relevant subject to talk about because I believe that we live in a polarized country right now. And we are concerned as we look at our leaders, different leaders, and I'm not going to mention specific ones, but I have to admit that when I see what certain leaders are pushing for or certain agendas or how certain people are treated or how they treat other people, I get angry about it. I get upset about it. These are the ones who are supposed to be in positions of authority to be doing good, and yet sometimes they don't do good. And the question is, how do we as Christians respond to that? Now, last week, we looked at the story of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. 
Today I'd like to continue the story beginning in verse 20 or 57 of Matthew chapter 26. So it's Matthew 26. We're going to begin our story in verse 57. Where we read, those who arrested Jesus led him away to Caiaphas the high priest, where the scribes and elders had convened. Meanwhile, Peter was following him at a distance, right to the high priest's courtyard. He went in and was sitting with the temple police to see the outcome. Now, let me stop for a moment, but none of the gospel accounts include all the details. It's only when you put it all together that you see the actual scene that took place. Dr. Barbieram makes this observation from the four different gospel accounts that there were actually six trials that Jesus went through. Three of them were at the hand of the religious leaders who in their day were like the court system for the Jewish people, and three of them were civic trials. And the reason both were needed was in Jesus's day, the Jewish people were not allowed to put anyone to death. And so if someone was to get capital punishment, they had to be turned over to the civic or civil leaders. But Dr. Barbary notices these six different trials. The first one before Annas. Annas was a high priest in the time of Christ. The second was before Caiaphas. Caiaphas himself was also a high priest. In fact, his father-in-law was Annas. And the reason there were two high priests is because in Jesus' day, the Romans picked Caiaphas. And so there were actually two that were in this role, and Jesus ended up standing before both of them. Then he stood before the Sanhedrin, a group of about 70 people, leaders in Israel, the elders of Israel, plus the high priest that made 71. These were the three trials before the religious leaders, and then he had three trials before the civic leaders, one before Pilate, then before Herod, and then he was returned to Pilate. What I want us to notice about these six trials is that in none of these cases did Jesus get justice. In fact, again, we'll see in a minute, the religious leaders were actually looking for false witnesses to testify against Jesus. They were not interested in the truth. And then Pilate, again, he discovered that Jesus had done nothing wrong. In fact, he even knew that the reason that they had turned Jesus over to him was because they were jealous of him. And yet, and yet, he did not use his position to release Jesus. He caved before the crowd. Let's continue reading, though, in verse 59 of Matthew 26. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for false testimony against Jesus so they could put him to death, but they could not find any, even though many witnesses came forward. Finally, two came forward and stated, this man said, I can demolish God's sanctuary and rebuild it in three days. The high priest then stood up and said to him, don't you have an answer to what these men are testifying against you? Let me make some observations up to this point in the story again. These guys are not looking for justice, Usually you don't have a trial unless there are people that come forward to make an accusation. In this case, there was no one to accuse Jesus, and so they went out to look for people that could do it. And of course, what the witnesses said wasn't quite right. They finally found two witnesses to make the statement that, that Jesus had said, knock down this temple and I'll rebuild it in three days. Now, there were a couple problems about their testimony. First of all, that's not exactly what Jesus said. 
That's not what Jesus said. And secondly, of course, Jesus was not talking about the physical temple, but his own body. But of course, these religious leaders were not looking for the truth here at all. And everything about this trial was wrong. A scholar by the name of Blomberg notes this. There are numerous apparent illegalities in the officials' procedures. For example, Jews were not to hold trials at night or during festivals, of course, like the Passover was. No capital verdict, in other words, a verdict of death, could be reached in one day, which, of course, they did with Jesus. And the accused should have been permitted counsel for the defense. The testimony against Jesus was too flimsy to hold up, and the procedure for calling witnesses made a shambles of the law. They didn't have a case. In fact, even if Jesus had said that, even if he said, I will tear down this temple, I will build it up in three days, there's no blasphemy here. It may have not have been the wisest thing to say from the perspective of, of his accusers, but there was nothing criminal about it. And the religious leaders realized they didn't have a case, and so they had to come up with a different tactic. Now, again, I want to note that these leaders were not interested in the truth. They were not looking for answers. I find it interesting that they didn't call any of the 12 disciples or apostles to testify at all. And then again, the witnesses even couldn't agree among themselves. But we pick up the story then in verse 63. But Jesus kept silent. Then the high priest said to him, by the living God, I place you under oath Tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. You have said it, Jesus told him, but I tell you, in the future you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of the power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, he's blasphemed. Why do we still need witnesses? Look, now you've heard the blasphemy. What is your decision? They announced he deserves death. Then they spit in his face and beat him. Others slapped him and said, prophesy to us, Messiah, who hit you? Now, their charge of blasphemy here was not correct or lawful. There was no blasphemy here. Dr. L. Morris explains, according to the Jewish law recorded in the Mishnah, blasphemy involved the use of the sacred name of God, the name we translate as Yahweh. The Mishnah is explicit on this. The blasphemer is not culpable unless he pronounces the name itself. Jesus had not used that name. Thus, according to the Jewish law, what he had said might be inadvisable, but it was not blasphemy. Again, no blasphemy was committed, but the high priest made his decision and everyone else agreed. Now, the real reason, of course, that they called it blasphemy is that he associated himself a little too closely with God from Daniel chapter 7 and verse 13. He made the claim, I'm going to come in the clouds one day, I'm going to sit next to the Almighty God, and one day I'm going to rule in a kingdom that will last forever. And they said, blasphemy. That is blasphemy, of course, again, it wasn't. Now, when I read this whole story, I get mad I get upset. Sometimes I even feel a certain helplessness, like why doesn't someone step in and do the right thing here? Jesus received, of course, no justice. And in the world in which we live today, that's often the case as well. Justice is not served. The leaders do not make many times the right decisions. 
and people are hurt and harmed in the process. And so it comes back to our original question, what do we do? How do we respond to those who are in authority when we disagree with them or when they make decisions that don't make sense? Oftentimes when we face something that's not right or unjust, we can go to another authority, but what happens when the authorities are the problem, as it was in the case of Jesus? Well, we're gonna finish this story next week, but I wanna give us three things that I believe are biblical responses to this question. Biblical responses to the question, what do we do when our leaders are not godly or they don't make the right decisions or it looks like darkness is reigning? The first one is one that I think some of you may disagree with, but I encourage you to check it out for yourself. It's a hard one for us, especially in our culture today, to accept the first point that I'm gonna make. Although I encourage you to listen to the evidence and then the next two points I'm going to make will round it out just a little bit. Here's the first point. I think we need to remember that God places people in positions of authority. God is the one who puts people in places of authority. Again, we may not like this, but as I look throughout the pages of the Bible, this is indeed the reality. This is indeed the truth. And we may not like the people that are in authority, We do not always understand why God puts them in places of authority, but I'm convinced it's the truth. When Jesus stood before Pilate in one of the trials, this is the point he made. In John 19, verses 9 through 12, we read, Pilate went back into the headquarters and asked Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus did not give him an answer. So Pilate said to him, you're not talking to me? Don't you know that I have the authority to release you and the authority to crucify you? You'd have no authority over me at all, Jesus answered him, if it had not been given you from above. This is why the one who handed me over to you has the greater sin. From that moment, Pilate made every effort to release him. What was Jesus saying to Pilate? He was saying, I recognize you're an authority, but the authority you have came from God. You'd have no authority except God gave you that authority. This is, I think, the biblical perspective. God puts people in positions of authority. Now, sometimes I think it's because, I think sometimes God gives us what we deserve. That sometimes God puts people in authority that that are not the best people, but they're ones that maybe we deserve. This is what happened in the Old Testament when the people asked for a king. And God said, okay, I'll give you a king. I'll give you the kind of king you're looking for, but it did not work out very well. And other times I think God puts people in authority because he's got a sovereign plan, which is really the heart of what I want us to understand with this first point. Ultimately, God is sovereign. He's he's sovereign over the affairs of this world and over the leaders as well. A leader in the Old Testament came to understand this lesson the hard way. I think the greatest Old Testament leader in terms of just his influence over the world was Nebuchadnezzar, at least in terms of a worldly leader. Nebuchadnezzar, at a certain point, became proud in his heart and he looked at his kingdom and all he had accomplished and he said, look what I have done. I've achieved this all through myself. And Daniel approached him and said these words in Daniel 4 and verse 25. 
You'll be driven away from people to live with the wild animals. You will feed on grass like cattle and be drenched with dew from the sky for seven periods of time until you acknowledge that the Most High is ruler over the kingdom of men and he gives it to anyone he wants. That's how this thing works. The Most High is ruler over the kingdom of men and he gives it to anyone he wants. And this is how we should understand it. Of course, the Apostle Paul wrote in Romans 13, 1 and 2 then, everyone must submit to the governing authorities for there's no authority except from God and that those exist are instituted by God. So then, the one who resists the authority is opposing God's command and those who oppose it will bring judgment on themselves. I think what Paul is saying here is that of all people, Christians need to be respectable and law-abiding citizens. This is why early on when the governor made his proclamation about groups not gathering that we honored that request and we closed our doors early on in the process. Peter mentioned in 1 Peter 2, 13 through 15, submit to every human authority because of the Lord, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors as those sent out by him to punish those who do what is evil and to praise those who do what is good. For it's God's will that you silence the ignorance of foolish people by doing good. Now, I understand this isn't a very popular idea right now. And I'm not suggesting, by the way, that we need to respect every individual that's in every spot. You know, there's some leaders that I can think of in my own mind, I, I personally do not have any respect for those leaders whatsoever in terms of their character and in terms of the decisions they make. There are some individuals that from my own perspective I feel have made every single wrong decision, decisions that I think are even contrary to what's taught in the pages of the Bible, but they are still in this position of authority which requires a certain amount of respect. Now the reason this is important is because if we do not learn respect for those in authority, I do not believe that we'll listen to God properly. We will not respect God properly. Early on in the Bible, we read in the Old Testament about children. It says, children, obey your parents in the Lord because that's right. Honor your father and your mother. It's the first command with the promise that it'll go well with you and that you'll live a long life on the earth. Honor your parents. You say, what if I disagree with them? Honor your father and your mother. Recognize that God has put them in your life. You may disagree, but they're in that position. And often that's the case with, with us as well. Now, Jesus, I think, modeled this in Matthew 26 and verse 63. Where we read, but Jesus kept silent. Then the high priest said to him, by the living God, I place you under oath. Tell us if you're the Messiah, the Son of God. You've said it, Jesus told him. I just want to make this point that up to this point in the trial, Jesus didn't say a word, and then the high priest basically said, I command you by the living God. That's really what he's saying here when he says, by the living God, I place you under oath. I'm commanding you to testify, and it was only at that point he said, okay, and he spoke up. And so we respect this position. But let me mention something else related to this subject, and and I think it'll help us just a little bit. Number two is that we need to remember that one day justice will be served. I think this is something that'll help us. I mean, the first point helps us understand the sovereignty of God. When we remember God places people in positions of authority, I'm just reminded of the sovereignty of God. Okay, you've got this, God. But the second one here, justice will be served, also provides a certain amount of 
of comfort to me. Looking again at verse 64, I love what Jesus said to the high priest. He said, you have said it, Jesus told him, but I tell you, in the future you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of the power and coming on the clouds. I think what Jesus was saying here is this, do you want to know if I'm the Messiah? Yes, I want to tell you who I am. I'm coming one day, I'm coming in the clouds. One day, I'm gonna sit next to my Father in heaven and I'm gonna rule forever and ever. One day, you'll see. One day, I'm gonna be in charge. I mean, right now, things look like they're in your favor, but in the future, it won't be that way. Of course, Jesus was quoting from Daniel 7, 13 and 14, where Daniel wrote, I continued watching in the night visions and I saw one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven he approached the Ancient of Days and was escorted before him. He was given authority to rule and glory and a kingdom so that those of every people, nation, and language should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. Here's the thing. I think Jesus could stand calmly before this godless and wretched leader who was not interested in what was right, who was falsely condemning him, he could stand there calmly because he looked in the future when one day things would be made right. I think the same thing is true. One day justice is gonna be served. In one sense, no one gets away with murder. One day the, the tables are gonna be turned. One day the unrighteous will receive their due. Of course, one day too, I think we'll be rewarded as Christians for the things we do as well. But it's important to realize that. Now again, I sometimes struggle with the injustice I see around me. I struggle with the decisions that certain leaders make. But then I'm reminded again, God's got this. And one day things will be run correctly and biblically and in a way that pleases God when Jesus especially is ruling on this earth. But let me mention a third thing we need to remember. In addition to the fact that God is the one that puts people in places of authority and that one day justice will be served, I want to encourage us to remember to pray for those in authority. This is another thing that we can do and should do. In Luke chapter 23, we have the scene of Jesus hanging on the cross and he says something, a prayer. There's some discussion whether or not this prayer is, was in the original Greek documents, in the original Luke New Testament or not. We don't know for sure. But scholars seem to agree that he likely said it, and it was certainly consistent with the way Jesus was. Let's look at verse 33 of Luke 23, where we read, when they arrived at the place called the skull, they crucified him there along with the criminals, one on the right and one on the left. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them because they do not know what they're doing. And they divided his clothes and cast lots. Now, most of your Bibles have a footnote here saying that this statement, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing, doesn't appear in some of the older documents. But again, scholars believe that it probably should be included because this is what Jesus taught. And it's something we should keep in mind when we view people as being our enemies. In Matthew 5, 43 to 45, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. For he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. 
That's the perspective we're supposed to have. We're not to hate our enemy, we're to love our enemy, and we're to pray for our enemy. And by the way, I think that means pray for their good, not for their harm, which the temptation is to pray for their harm. And of course, Paul told Timothy we're to do this exact same thing. In 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 3, only Timothy, by the way, was talking about praying for leaders. He said, first of all, and that phrase means in terms of priority, I urge that petitions, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for everyone, for kings and all those who are in authority, so that you may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. Paul goes on to say that when we pray for our leaders, and peace will come in, and that will allow the gospel to spread. And so this is an encouragement for us to begin praying for our leaders, and especially, I think, those with which we struggle the most, to begin praying for them. Instead of criticizing our leaders, maybe we should be praying for them instead and asking that somehow, even in our government, at the highest level, that there would actually be peace so that the gospel might spread. And so I want to encourage you here today. I think we need to do these three things. Number one is remember God's the one who puts people in positions of authority. That'll cause us not to be so anxious or angry, but to recognize our God is sovereign. Second, remember that one day justice will be served. And third, to remember to pray for those in authority. Now, I want to add this as I wrap up this morning. Sometimes when it comes with those who are in authority, there are things that we can do and should do. And so I don't want to suggest here today that when people make the wrong decisions or people do the wrong things that we should just sit on our hands and let it go. No, I want to encourage you. There are sometimes things we can do. Sometimes there's a higher authority to whom we can appeal. Sometimes there are things that we can say or things that we can write. There are messages that we can get out to expose the injustice that has taken place. Sometimes there are ways that we can serve that would would bring about good instead of evil in the exact situation where the wrong has taken place. There are things often we can do. But in the meantime, I want to encourage you to do these things. Recognize the authority God has placed people in. Realize justice is coming. And remember to pray. And with that, why don't we close in prayer? Father, we look at those in authority in our nation maybe even in our town or in our state, and oftentimes we're just disappointed or angry. We recognize that sometimes good doesn't prevail. We recognize that sometimes laws are even passed that are contrary to what your word says is good and right. And it's easy for us to get angry. But Lord, we want to trust this to you, and we want to recognize that you're sovereign over all. I just think of the leaders that Paul was talking about when he said, submit to your authorities. It was people like Nero who lit up his garden parties with the, with the corpses of Christians that he lit on fire. And Lord, we as believers in you want to be respectful and godly citizens that we might point people to Jesus. And we do lift up then our authorities from the president to the Senate to the House to our, our governor to our local authorities here. We want to ask you for them. We specifically ask you to give them wisdom in the decisions they need to make. We pray, Lord, that godliness would prevail. We pray that your will would get done. We pray that they'd even have the heart to pray the Lord's Prayer. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We ask you, Lord, to accomplish your purposes through these leaders. 
And we ask you to give us the grace as, as we deal with them, especially when they make decisions that we don't feel are right. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.